All right, last thing, I'm going to introduce you guys a good friend of mine. His name is Tyler Johnson. He is the lead pastor of all of Redemption Church, okay? If you're unfamiliar with our leadership structure, we have 10 congregations across the state. Each one has a lead pastor, and then over all of us is this guy, Tyler, okay? He is a big deal, friends. So I am. Yeah, I am over he is you, a big deal. Yeah. So if you have any problems with me as your pastor, right. right, this would be the guy to complain to, okay? Um, he's going to side with me, so it doesn't matter, but still, uh, you should talk to him. But in a realistic uh, fashion, Tyler is honestly one of my closest friends, uh, trusted, amazing, gifted leader, and he's going to talk to us today about science and the Bible. Um, a couple weeks ago, actually about three, four weeks ago, we had Luke Simmons from Redemption Gateway up here. And someone asked me, because we had Pastor Frank from Redemption Arcadia a few weeks before that, if people were auditioning for my job yeah. because I had done something wrong. Uh, the answer is no. Okay? The reason why we're bringing people up right now is twofold. One, I think it's great for us to hear from other voices, uh, both in our church and in our community, because I'm not the only one who preaches truth, right? And so to hear from other voices to talk about the gospel is always a good thing. And then the second part of that is we are doing a lot for Easter, and I'm memorizing an entire thing, and so this is really a benefit to me. So when Tyler said he was coming up to visit last week, I said, great, you want to preach? And he said yes. Okay, so um, would you guys, as he go and pray for him because this is a tough, pretty nuanced topic. So anyone, Tyler Johnson, please welcome. Well, it's great to, uh, thanks for that. It's great to be with you. Vince, here's your broken phone. Um, if you guys have a problem with Vince and you want to come talk to me just before you come, no, I have problems with Vince too. So, um, that is not a problem. And the first one was when he said to me, well, if you're coming up, will you preach? And I said, sure. And he said, this is a huge problem. You're going to teach on science in the Bible. So that's a huge problem to just put upon somebody. And let me acknowledge this up front. I am no scientist. So if you're in this room and you really wrestle with these questions of science and faith, science and Christianity, and you want to hear somebody more articulate in the scientific realm, they're out there. Um, I'd encourage you, you can go. There's an incredible organization called the Veritas Forum. And if you go to Veritas Forum slash media, there's so many different topics of high intellectual discussion that they'll address, and many of them on science. So I want to start off, if you are a scientist in this room and you want to come up to me afterwards, I don't have much to offer you. I wouldn't even consider myself an armchair scientist. Um, so I am not that. There's also a great guy that uh, you guys are going to have an opportunity to hear about. I think they're going to give you more resources, but a mathematician um, that's at Oxford named John Lennox, who actually just gave a lecture at Arizona State University through the Veritas Forum. So I want to acknowledge that up front. The other thing I want to acknowledge is that science and the Bible are two words that are huge. There's no way in 35 minutes we are going to be able to do justice to either science or the Bible, let alone the integration of the two of them. There's no possible way. So I am not going to answer every question that you have or raise every question that all of us maybe should have, but we are going to go out this speaking 
in a church from a Christian perspective uh, to really deal with this question of how in the world can you be intellectually credible or think you are at all when there's been all of these advancements in science. And we're going to fly at this from a very 40,000 foot level from this passage in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at. But before we do, uh, Vince asked you to be praying for me. I'm going to pray for all of us right now as we get into this topic. God, I pray that you'd meet us. Um, God, as I admit to you, I am no scientist. Um, I think the vast majority of people in this room certainly are not experts. But God, you've given us all minds and you've given us brains and you've uh, given us these bodies and our humanness that we might live in them in the midst of this world in which science studies. And so, God, we do need to understand how all these things fit together at some level. And yet we want to acknowledge before you our limitations in answering these questions and yet God not be those who stick their head in the sand. So we acknowledge to you we don't have all of the answers, but God, we want to come before you and be responsible for that which we need to answer to. In Christ's name we pray, amen. How many of you guys have ever heard of a guy named G.K. Chesterton? Anybody ever heard? Um, So if you ever study C.S. Lewis, you'll hear about Chesterton somewhat. He's written some really famous books. Probably the most famous is a book called Orthodoxy, which is his defense of why he's a Christian. And then he also wrote a book called The Everlasting Man. When you get to orthodoxy of why he's a Christian, he does a much better job than I would. But I say to people all the time, I did not grow up in the church. So I am not a Christian because I was raised in it. I would say that I'm a Christian first and foremost because God did something that to me that I couldn't deny. And I say this all the time. I am still a Christian to this day more because God holds on to me than I hold on to God. Now, I acknowledge in this room, some of you may go, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, But at the same time, I say this. I'm a Christian right now because I think the Bible gives the best meaning to the totality of the world that I live in. I think it gives the best meaning to the totality of the world that I live in. So G.K. Chesterton, if you want a deeper, more intellectual defense, does it in a book called Orthodoxy. He also wrote a book called The Everlasting Man. And in that book, he says this, man is not merely an evolution, but rather a revolution. So I want to say that again and let that quote just sit with us for a minute. G.K. Chesterton says man is not merely, he's not making an argument against evolution with this statement, but he says he's not merely an evolution. Man is a revolution. And this is really important for us to understand anytime we're dealing with deep questions of life is that we would understand our humanness. One, that we would understand the limitations of our humanness. And secondly, we'd understand the honor of our humanness. Because truth be told, we can do nothing but in our humanness. Now, I don't know if there are some of you out there who aren't human. Um, Maybe there is. And some of you believe that maybe there are people in this room that aren't human. But I would argue... All of us sitting in this room can't do anything outside of our body, can't do anything outside of our humanness. So when we come to the world in all that we experience, 
and it poses questions to us and we pose questions of it, we cannot but answer these questions or encounter these questions outside of being people. Males and females, we can't do that. In Chesterton saying something about the honor of you and I and the people that are sitting next to you and every other human that ex- ever existed is that there's something way more significant to humanity than just an evolution. And I think he is saying than just an unguided process. But in fact, man is a revolution. There's something extraordinary about humanity. And God in the Bible would agree. The only thing in all of God's creation that is made in the image of God is males and females. We are a revolution, but at the same time, we are merely creatures. And if you are listening to this, you are listening as one individual who sits amongst a sea of creation and a sea of humanity, a community, if you will, would be the right way to think about it. The way the best people ever from Martin Luther King to Gandhi have said, we are a community. It's one of the things that's so problematic right now about our political process that would make the senior pastor of Flagstaff Christian Fellowship say, pray about our political process is that we have really lost, especially in our country, this idea that we are a community. And in understanding you're part of a sea of creation and you're a part of a wider community, it also means we have to accept our limitations. There is honor in being a human being, but there also is a limit to being a human being. So that's a really important starting place for us as we encounter science in the Bibles to understand we always encounter it in our humanness. And think for a minute about you and I and the people that are sitting around you about the way we just experience life. We encounter all kinds of things from stress to relationships. And you're going, relationships create stress. We're sexual beings, so we encounter sexual realities and sexual appetites. We have physical appetites and we encounter good food and bad food and good wine and bad wine and good coffee and bad coffee and good beer and bad beer. Whatever it might be, we have appetites of many kinds. We encounter fears and we encounter anxieties. We encounter what life is like with energy, what life is like without energy, which makes us go, what is energy? We have family, we have hobbies, we have work, pets, volunteering, and we all have to deal with the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, regardless of what you believe. You may sit in this room this morning and say, you know what? Christians have to deal with the problem of pain. And I would say that's true, but so do you. So does everybody. Everybody has to answer this question of why do we encounter so much of life that we go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not right. Why do we get angry and why do we get happy? Those are all questions that we encounter in our humanness. Now, we're talking today about science and the Bible or science and faith. Really simply, if you just go on and go, give me a definition of science, the dictionary will pull up some definition like this. Science is defined as something like the intellectual and the practical activity, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural word world through observation and 
and experiment. Now, again, if you're a scientist in this room and you go, oh, that's just the dictionary's definition. It's much more than that. I know it is. But in the end, what it's saying is science is the intellectual and the practical activity of observing the world that we live in from a human perspective and trying to observe it and study it and make sense of it. That's what science is. Now, faith is defined two different ways when you type in the definition of faith. One is the strong belief in God or in the doctrines doctrines of a religion based upon spiritual apprehension rather than proof. Now, truth be told, I don't like that definition of faith because I don't think faith is just blind faith, which that's a definition of. Just so you know, if you sit there and go, well, all the smartest people, all the scientists are not Christians. That's just not true. One example is the man who led the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, is a explicit stated believer in faith, specifically in Christianity. And we could name over and over and over again past and present scientists who were Christians that they would say based upon evidence. So a better definition of faith, I believe, is the other one that comes up if you type this in, and it's that faith is the complete trust or confidence in something or someone. Trust in something or someone, of which I would then say everybody has faith. You either have faith in yourself, or you have faith in human progress, or you have faith in a God or the God of the Bible, let's say if we're sitting in here as Christians, everybody trusts, has a foundation, what people that are smarter than me will call first principles, a starting place that provides a cohesive unit to everything. Now you may say that's science or what we have proven or not, but at the end of the day, everybody has trust, which means everybody has faith. Now, I want you to understand something. Many, many, many believers, we're in here as a Christian church, or those who are believers, believe that the more you study the natural world, the more, in fact, it drives you to God. Now, I know many of you in this room are students at NAU or have been, and you go to classes in which people will start off and go, if you believe in God, you're an idiot. Now, we have to stop for a minute and go, why are they saying that? Well, many people would say the only way we come to truth is through empirical data a la science. But if science is the only way to come to truth, at least half the university down the road shouldn't exist because not all of that university is based upon empirical sciences. Secondly, there's no way just that which has been proven gives meaning to all of human existence. It gives observation and proof to many things that we've studied, but scientists themselves would say there's so much, likely more, that we haven't studied. So the issue is you could say, I plunge myself into science and it leads me away from God. We would argue right now that even the Bible declares that the more you observe of the world and the more you observe of creatures and the more you observe of the pinnacle of creation, humanity, the more it will inform you about God and that there's a God that really exists. Much like Newton believed that the deeper he went into science, the more he became a believer 
in God. Even Einstein did not believe in a personal God, but looked at the world and said, there's something behind this. There was a faith. So I'm trying to say to you right now, just take away from you the idea that when somebody immediately that you feel smarter than you says, if you believe in God, you're a fool, to go, well, there's a lot of really smart people out there that believe in God. And show you that there's a structure that integrates in the Bible itself that integrates science and faith. So let me say this prior um, to just making some observations from Psalm 19. To understand the biblical story, and when I said to you I'm a Christian first and foremost because I believe it gives the best meaning to the universe, understand this, that the way in which the Bible starts is that there is a God, one God, who creates everything that we can see and all the things that we can't see, and that God designed the universe to be in union or harmony, that all of creation would be in harmony with God, that you and I as human beings would be in harmony with God. So there's a statement of it goes together like hand and glove. So do an exercise for me really quick. Put your hands together because in fact, your hands go together even stronger than hand and glove would be. Now cross them over and make a fist with your two things. So in the end, God made the world to be in union with God. God made you and I to be in harmony with him. That's the first, if you drew concentric circles, in union with God. Now take them apart. He made you to be in union with yourself. Now take them apart. He made us to be in union with each other. Take them apart. To be union with the rest of the entirety of all of creation. The entire world in union. Okay, so every, all four of these are meant to be in harmony, harmony, harmony with each other. So you could call the God-oriented part spirituality or the spiritual side. In union with myself is psychology. In union with others is sociology. And in union with the rest of creation, you could call sciences or physical sciences. All of those are sciences in themselves, but it's everything else, right, in the midst of that. So there's a comprehensive view of the Bible from the very beginning because the God of the Bible made everything, everything that we can see and that which we can't see. Now, the Bible also tells us that there was disobedience from God and therefore we were alienated from God, alienated from ourselves, alienated from each other and alienated from the world. In short, life's hard, right? So if I said, is Life with God, trying to find your spiritual path hard. If you were honest with yourself, you'd go, amen. Is life trying to figure yourself out, the way you're wired, what career you should do, what should be next? What, who are you even? Is that hard? People, if they're honest, would say yes. Are relationships hard? Can I get an amen? Amen, amen right? It's hard. Is life hard, right? The rest of creation, amen. So the Bible in the first three chapters is all of a sudden going, all of life matters, and all of life is hard. Now that, in a very real way, based upon this definition of science, I could go, I could prove it. There's two types of proof, research, right? There's quantitative and qualitative research. Now I could just go out and do research and ask you all that question and get the response, amen, life's hard, and is the way, life the way it should be? And you'd go, no. Most people would be, hence why we do science, hence why we study psychology, hence why we do all this, and begin to go, I'm beginning to have some evidence that human beings agree on something 
that life's hard and that at the very same time, life has extraordinary beauty to it and is amazing. So that worldview is really important to understand. Now let's drive immediately into science. So you understood the four circles. We were made to be in harmony with God, harmony with ourselves, harmony with each other, and harmony with the rest of the world. One of the places science benefits us to an enormous degree is in medicine. Now, if you decide to go into medicine and be one who really is at kind of the top of the medicine game, you end up being called a doctor. Now, there's a hospital in the Phoenix area that's world-renowned. It's one of three parts of this hospital called the Mayo Clinic. How many of you guys have heard of the Mayo Clinic? A lot of people. The Mayo Clinic does some of the best medical research, science, and it's known as one of the best hospitals in the world to diagnose problems. Now, there's a guy at Mayo Clinic Scottsdale that got recruited to Scottsdale to start their integrative medicine program, integrative medicine program. He had started the hospitalist program at Mayo Rochester and been there for over 20 years, then came to Scottsdale to start their process of integrative medicine. The reason they did is they were seeing a third of their people that they were seeing at Mayo Rochester were doing some form of what was called alternative medicine, some form of alternative medicine. And they went, this is really interesting. Well, Scottsdale said, if you're seeing one third of your patients, we're seeing like 98% of our people do some form of alternative medicine that isn't classic Western medicine. Okay. And that means they're doing something like acupuncture or essential oils or smoking weed or whatever it is, right? That at the end of the day, they're doing something to alternative. So he goes over and does it. He and I have developed a friendship the guy that started, and he drew for me one of the first days we were together, this wheel of health that is a worldwide wheel of health. And in this wheel of health, there's four sections to it. The mental section, the physical section, the spiritual section, and the emotional section. Sounds a little like the four rings that Genesis 1 through 3 begin to tell us. And he says this to me, He is now known as one of the best diagnosticians, the person who diagnoses things in all of Mayo Clinic. The doctors come to him and say, something's wrong with me. And typically the people that show up at Dr. Birdstrom's office are the people that have gone through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars of tests only to have people look at him and go, there's nothing wrong with you. And they look back and go, no, there's something wrong with me because I have incredible pain in my body or I'm experiencing sickness upon sickness. I guarantee you almost everybody in this room knows somebody or you yourself have felt let down by medicine because you go, you ask them to prescribe medicine, it doesn't solve a solution and yet you continue to have problems and at the end of the day, you leave the office whether having a doctor explicitly state to you or but through body language state to you, it's all in your head. You're nuts. Dr. Bergstrom drew this out and said, here's the fundamental reason for that, is Western medicine has such a scientism view, a view that only what we can prove is true, only what we can diagnose as disease is true, everything else is garbage. And it's only one quadrant of what the whole world thinks health is. So I want to hear you 
you to hear me, what I'm saying and what he was saying to me is that one of our fundamental problems in a world that makes anything supreme and only, supreme and only, is that it's only a portion of the real life of a human being. And it leads to, if it doesn't understand its limitations, it leads to horrific consequences to human beings that now think they're insane when in fact they're not, to physical health that actually could be helped but no longer is, to saying we're answering all questions when in fact people go insane because we're not answering the whole question. So at the end of the deal, here's what I want us to really understand fundamentally about this. Science is not the only way to truth. Remember I said this, if that were true, over half of NAU shouldn't even exist. And in fact, the statement that science is only way, the only way to truth can't be proven. So in fact, the statement itself isn't science. Now here's the other side of the coin because it's science in the Bible. The Bible is not a manual on how to play baseball. My boys are playing baseball right now. And if I said to them, the Bible gives you answers to everything, take it and figure out how to hit they would stink, right? They would not because they'd sit there and they'd be like, where's that part about how to hit, right? I don't see it anywhere. The Bible is not a book written for every answer to every question, okay? What I'm saying in that is this Bible is not a science manual. And yet the Bible provides massive room and foundation in which to do science. There's many people that would argue the development of modern science developed fundamentally out of a belief in a personal, rational God. If you want to read about that, there's a book that Rodney Stark has written about that. But those are two very important things, is that science isn't the end-all, be-all only thing, but neither is the Bible giving us an answer to everything. They need each other. Now, in that, I'm not saying that the Bible and a science textbook are equal. We believe as Christians that the Bible is the Word of God, but it has an intended purpose, it records God's acts in history and it is used as a record and as a tool to shape a people to say to the world in all of its form and fashion from art to science, this is what life is meant to look like and God fundamentally cares about that. So we read a passage in Psalm 19 that I wanna make some statements upon. Psalm 19 verses one through six, starting in verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, if you're in here and you don't believe in God or you struggle, you may go right away, I disagree. So let's start off on common ground and just say the heavens, when we look up at the sky, it's amazing. Right? Don't even, we don't even have to use the word God right now, but it's amazing. And the sky above and the heavens above and the world in which we see is an amazing thing. Scientists agree upon this and Christian theologians and pastors agree upon this. Artists agree upon this. The world in fact is amazing. I encountered this today driving up here and you encounter the reality of the amazing nature of the world, both cognitively and you recognize it and subconsciously it just is amazing 
So for instance, I'm driving up here this morning. I turned on my car and I just drove my Honda Accord up here. Well, in the midst of it, I'm thinking about it and I'm going, think about the science. So now it's cognitive. Think about the science behind this car that creates internal combustion to make an engine run. That's amazing. And it's amazing whether I recognize it or I don't. I flew a plane yesterday. Think about the science behind an airplane, folks. I mean, every time I get in an airplane, I'm like, let the science work, right? Because I don't want this baby going down. But it's unbelievable whether you acknowledge it or whether you don't. This morning, my son calls me on the phone as I'm driving up here, and I'm thinking, an iPhone? Like, think of the science behind an iPhone and how it benefits me to communicate to my child as a car benefits me to get to Flagstaff and a plane benefited me to get home from San Diego. Science is unbelievable and does unbelievable good and is operating around us in a modern world all the time. And it's amazing whether we recognize it or not. Now, the reality is the world operates like this. The world has a science to it, which is why scientists study it. There's an architecture to the world. There's an engineering to the world. There's an artistry to the world that we all look at and have the ability to be amazed by. Many of you might have come to Flagstaff or lived in Flagstaff because you say things like, it's beautiful. The world is fundamentally amazing. Now here, the author of the psalm is saying the world. He says the heavens, but he says the heavens like I would say Denver won the Super Bowl. Okay, I will get that in every time I can. I'm a massive Broncos fan. So if you didn't know, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. But we make statements like Denver won the Super Bowl. And you go, did the city of Denver, like the total city of Denver? No, no, no. It's representing something that's Denver is representing something smaller. Well, you can do the same way, the opposite way. When he says heavens, he's speaking about all the bits, all the jots and tittles that make up the world and life fundamentally. And he's saying the world's amazing and speaks to God. The world is amazing and speaks to God from the grandest of the heavens that when we look up or I look at a sunrise this morning or we look at the stars in the sky at night, it literally makes us go, oh my, in such a way that now I can go to the most minute, tiny plant and begin to look at it This is why they have microbiology and macrobiology, microeconomics and macroeconomics. Is at the end, when you look at something that's big, you have the ability to look at the beauty of that which is small. And even when you look at the intricacy of that which is small, you begin to go, oh my gosh, the whole world around us is amazing. Now, truth be told, the scientist and every human being has to begin to ask questions of that. And this is where I want you to understand something about science in the Bible, okay? There are two types of knowledge. Science observes process. So for instance, scientists have studied gravity, correct? When they study gravity, they go, gravity's real. If I step off of this stage, I fall, right? If I took my phone and dropped it, it falls. That's an observation of something, a process that's happening, But it doesn't necessarily, nor is science ever intended to say, but what's the purpose 
of gravity. We may say it actually holds many things together in our world, but the ultimate purpose, it's never seeking or intended or has not yet shown us the ultimate purpose. So I would say to you right now in simple form, realize that there are different planes of how to know something. I can know something by dropping it off and then I can go, but why does that happen? And why is it here? And why was it set up like that? You can observe things in the universe that you have to have to observe it, meaning you have to have the, the universe and you have to be a person, but then it's a whole nother thing to go, what's the purpose of the universe and who am I? And what am I? So in very simple terms, and it's very simple, I told you 40,000 foot look, science may observe process where faith can begin to speak to purpose and they aren't opposite, they're integrated realities. They're integrated, they're two different types of knowledge. And here in Psalm 19, and what we believe as Christians is that fundamentally when we observe the process, it leads us to the ultimate purpose which is this grand architect. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. The psalmist then says, day to day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they reveal knowledge. Now, right here, this is providing, I would argue, if you understand the whole of the Bible, a basis, not the only basis in the Bible, but a basis for science. So day to day, the world is pouring forth speech that if we are normal human beings, I believe made the way God made us to be as in his image, we are constantly interpreting the world around us. So in essence, many of us are making observations of what to do next based upon that. In that sense, we're all scientists. But then there are these experts that are asking very intricate questions that as the world is speaking to them, They're making a process, an observation, and a study to make sense of that. Here, the psalmist is saying, and the world that we're at is pouring forth knowledge. That's fundamentally what science is. It's about knowledge. It's a pursuit of knowledge. And the psalmist is saying, the world is doing that to us all the time. It's pouring forth speech and it's revealing to us knowledge. Now, I believe as Christians... In fact, I believe as humans that God made us, and you see this in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, he made us and a whole world around us that he said, I've made you in the image of God. Be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue the earth, have dominion up over it, which meant literally steward this, process it. He didn't give human beings all the knowledge at once about all of the world, but he made this world a lab for us to go explore it. He made all of us in one form or fashion, explorers, inventors, observers, scientists. And in the end, as we observe the world in process, we ask these bigger questions regardless of who we are, which ultimately makes us all theologians the purpose questions. And the psalmist is giving account to that, that day to day they're pouring forth speech. So science exists to make sense of the world as does theology. Okay, we're having questions 
blasted at us. We encounter life. What should I do next? What does this mean? How should I observe this? How should I interpret it? Science and theology in a very real sense are both trying to make sense of the world in which we live in, one through an observation of process, another through an understanding of ultimate purpose. We are called by God as human beings to do this. This is the purpose of it in the integration. I want you to see this as well. When you think about technology, here's my iPhone. Somebody develops an iPhone, right? And there had to be science behind this. So we pursue science to develop knowledge. As we develop knowledge, with knowledge comes power. You may have heard some philosophers say that sometime. With knowledge comes power. Now with power can come significant good, like me talking to my son, or significant bad, like hacking your identity and stealing your money. So in the end, there's this reality that science observes knowledge for the sake that we might have more power to answer ultimate problems, which necessitates wisdom. So think in that threefold way, knowledge, power, and wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from? Well, in this Psalm, very clearly, it says wisdom comes from seeing how we operate. Like that's not good for humanity. This is good. But ultimately the Psalm goes on to speak about a personal God who's revealed himself in his word that says, if we don't have knowledge in ways in which we can interpret, is it good to continue to move forward or not? It's to our demise to our consequence. It will be a consequence to ourselves. And this is somewhere where the United States could heed because the vision of the United States is progress, progress, progress. We'll pick up the pieces after. And I think our generations are gonna be living in the midst of a world that went progress, progress, progress with very little wisdom. And we're gonna have a lot of pieces to pick up. And I think it is a Christian responsibility both to seek knowledge to steward power and ultimately to bring forth wisdom and then to ultimately ask the question, where does wisdom come from? And as Christians, the Bible's really clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that creation is speaking of his handiwork, the word is speaking of him personally, offering to us this personal relationship with the God who is love and who is wisdom, which ultimately helps us live real life. So in short on that, here's the reality. If we're Christians and the way we should think about science and the Bible is one, we need to be attentive to the world around us. Right now, there's a whole movement called mindfulness, which is helping us develop our attentiveness, which I think is a very good thing in many forms, maybe not all. Two, seek knowledge. Don't just be passive, but seek it. Attentiveness is active. Seek knowledge. Then we have to make sense of it and then ultimately ask why questions. And then in the end, when we get those answers, we have to steward the knowledge and the power that we have in wisdom. The psalmist then says this, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. Now in short, here's what he's saying. We're gonna get through this part come to the very end. The psalmist is saying this, that the reality of what the world tells us is 
without language. And I think the best interpretation is without a common language like we speak. It isn't in English. It isn't in Japanese. It isn't in Spanish. It isn't in Russian. It's languageless. It doesn't have a language in it at the same time. It's speaking to us all the time. All societies, if they have the ability to take a picture, take pictures to go, wow. All societies, regardless of language, regardless of cultures, are making observations on what makes the world well. All cultures are trying to answer the questions of life both scientifically in some form and ultimately theologically in purpose. And those things are together all the time, regardless of who you are. Now, here's what Psalm 19 is saying. And I'm going to read you a quote. And this is a guy named Hervin Bovink interpreting John Calvin. This is the view of the Bible. It says, there is not an atom of the universe. Who talks about atoms? Scientists. There is not an atom of the universe in which you cannot see some brilliant sparks at least that you can't see at least brilliant sparks of God's glory. This is where Christians in the Bible, where fundamentally Christians are different, is that we don't see the brilliance of the universe and stop, but that the psalmist is saying every atom. Now, what in here is not made up of atoms? This is baseline science. Nothing. That means everything from the smallest to the largest Herman Bovink and John Calvin are saying, there is not an atom of the universe that you cannot see brilliant sparks of God's glory. God is imminent in all of creation. That means he's present in all of creation. Now listen to this statement. This is the way Christians should view all of creation. And this is John Calvin, by the way. The pure in heart see God everywhere. Everything is full of God. I confess, this is what Calvin says, I confess that the expression Nature is God could be said by the godly of heart with a godly mind. Now, nature is not God. That's a worldview called pantheism. But he's saying the Christian view of the universe is not just that God created it, but that he upholds it. And he's upholding every atom. He's imminent and present in it. You see its beauty. It directs you to God. He's in the midst of it. Therefore, to a godly mind that understands nature's not God, to the godly of heart, they could look at the world and go, God's everywhere to such a level that they could go, nature is God. Now, you've got to understand the distinction. We're not saying God is God and he's the creator of nature, but he is so intimately woven himself into creation that it screams of his glory. Now, let me just deal with this problem. I'm going to deal with two more problems and then uh, we're going to come to a close. There's a huge accusation upon Christians or those of faith that you believe in a God of the gaps. You believe in a God that where there's not scientific answers, you fill in God. But I would say, if a scientist said this and wanted to be logically credible, I'd say, do you think that science has the answer to everything? For instance, one of the big challenges of saying science answers every question is the challenge of consciousness. Like, why does somebody experience beauty? Why are they conscious of that which they think is beautiful and that which they think is ugly? Why do they pursue a path to success or not success? Why are they conscious of empathy, that they've harmed somebody and not? 
There are very few, if any, scientific answers to this. And right now, neuroscience may be able to go, well, empathy is real because it fires in a certain part of the brain. But there's a whole portion of life that science can't answer. So if there's a God of the gaps, there's also science of the gaps, if you will. The reality is we live in a real world that has all of those questions that we need science and we need the Bible. We need faith and we need science. And this is where, in the end, we're going to end this section is when he says this. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, I know that last statement is true. There's nothing hidden from the sun's heat because I'm from Phoenix, right? Like that is just fact. You're from Phoenix, you go, there's nothing hidden from the sun's heat. But what the psalmist is trying to get us to do is to raise our attention to the magnitude of the sun, to see its splendor, its excellency, to see its swiftness of its course, to see the astonishing power of its heat and to go, why? That's macro. Now let me come micro to you. Right now in science, One of the heart of the sciences right now, the most sexy thing in the sciences, in biology, you want to know what the most sexy organ of the body is right now? The brain. I heard somebody say the nose. (laughs) Well, all the guys were going, it's not the nose, right? Like, it's the brain. Everybody's into this idea of neuroscience. And you want to know what the neuroscientists are saying? Listen to me, because this is two more minutes. You want to know what one of the biggest conclusions of neuroscience is right now? How important love is. That what the brain does when it's in loving relationships, not just romantically loving relationships, connected relationships. There's two books written right now and many more by scientists. One's called The General Theory of Love in which they're doing real science, real observation, real proof through human beings that's coming out and saying how important love is. Another one is called Born to Love. And it essentially talks about what's happening to the brain scientifically studied when it's been loved and the negative consequences of when it's not loved. You know, the Bible says fundamentally, here it's saying creation screaming of God's glory. But you know, the Bible says, if creation's pointing to God, the Bible says that God is love, 1 John 4, which means if the Bible's true, love's at the heart of the universe, which would mean if we studied humanity, who's made in the image of God, we'd probably come to a conclusion like love. That love runs the universe. It connects the universe. It's at the heart of the universe. I don't know if any of you guys have heard the name Brene Brown, but she's a social scientist, had a TED Talk that went rampant on vulnerability. And she speaks a lot from the idea of neuroscience. Saw a video of her the other day, and she said, you know what, at the end of the day, I ask a lot of questions about God. And if there was a God given my research, the God that would make utter and complete sense to me, is the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Because in the end, what we've learned from neuroscience is the only way to know something is to ultimately experience it. And if we were gonna know God, we couldn't know him at a distance. We'd had to have to know him up close and personal. And she said, at the end of the day, Jesus makes all kinds of sense to me. 
Because in the end, what Jesus was is the exact imprint of God's nature. The, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, Colossians 1 says, which means in Jesus, love, true love, the definition of the world, walked amongst us. Folks, I'm telling you right now, if you're a Christian in here and you've poo-pooed science, don't. And if you're a scientist in here, I'd say follow the science fundamentally. And I believe in all of my heart, it's going to lead to a God who is love, who fundamentally has revealed himself in a personal way in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us. God, I pray that we would encounter truth. And God, I believe in all my heart that the encountering of truth is the encountering of love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So right now we move into a time of reflection. And I just ask you to reflect upon those two things. The integration of science and faith, science and the Bible. And then ultimately, what does love have to do to the world? And when God said that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Jesus is love walking amongst us and that those who believe in him will have life everlasting, life that's worthy of word. Contemplate those things as we come to sing and participate in communion.